Zimbabwe's environment minister said big game hunting is necessary to raise money to fund conservation. You're listening to the news on RTHK. For the last two to five years. Public financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks and the dollar gain while bonds decline as markets look past the Fed. Asian futures rise on the Fed's ambiguity as oil extends a rebound. And in China, a top aerospace official has been fired over the sale of shares. Well, Hong Kong shares ended half a percent higher on Wednesday following a rally in the U.S. and European markets, while Shanghai enjoyed a strong rebound after a three-day sell-off. We'll talk markets this morning with Stan Chart's David Mann. Then uh, Towers Watson's Richard Tan tells us why alternative assets are, well, no longer alternative. Tobias Hexter of True Partner Advisors is back today as guest host. Good morning, Tobias. Good morning, Renita. Tobias, with a strong recovery in local and Chinese markets, is it now time to switch focus to the Fed? Well, the Fed certainly is going to be interesting, even though if they're going to do something in September, it's going to be very slowly. I would still focus my attention on what's happening on China, where the kitchen sink and everything else has been thrown in it. And one swallow doesn't make a summer. I wonder whether this thing is finished. All right. Well, aside from Tobias's fine opinion here, we have three uh, different opinions, three other different opinions for you this morning uh, on what is next for the Fed. Here is former Federal Reserve Governor Randall Krosner. They've left all their options open. Uh, they have slightly upgraded the um, uh, the economic outlook, but just slightly. So that leaves the basis for them moving to September, but it makes no uh, no promise that they're going to move in September. And Alan Blinder, a Princeton University professor. Not very worried about the position of the Fed right now. And as Janet Yellen is taken to reminding us a lot lately, not really that much hinges, unless you're a bond trader, on whether the first rate hike is in September or December. A lot hinges on what rates are going to do between now and the end of 2016. And Lloyd Blankfein, CEO of Goldman Sachs. I think it will be jarring when we see an interest rate hike because we haven't had one for some time. And then I think you know people will get out the smelling salts, take a sniff and recover because when we have and when we have that first hike um, the fed has already suggested that it will be very conservative at the trajectory of future hikes facebook incorporated said that quarterly revenue beat forecasts but profit fell 9% at the social media company on heavy spending to boost mobile revenue and future growth the company had warned that uh, 2015 would be a year of heavy investment but analysts have said that this is likely to translate into significant revenue streams in the coming years how important is mobile and what I- and is this what investors should be focusing on here's to economy Founder David Kirkpatrick. 
Well, I mean, the fact that they raised their revenue by a billion dollars in one year is, I think, something worth focusing on. Um, the user numbers have to keep going up because growth is, you know, the engine of the stock. Uh, however, I think we can continue to say that this is the medium probably of all media on the planet that is still seen by the advertising industry as most promising. So, you know, as mobile ads as a percentage of revenue is even slightly higher than analysts uh, anticipated, as I understand it, I think they were looking right, for 75% right. and came in at 76%. That is a huge successful thing at a time when we know mobile is where the users are on a global basis. And we've got to emphasize global, 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 whenever you're talking about Facebook, their growth is all over the world in literally every country. In other company news, Alibaba is to invest $1 billion in its cloud computing service, Aliyun. Bloomberg's Emily Chang reports. Today's bite is $1 billion. That is the amount of money Alibaba plans to pour into its cloud computing service, Aliyun. A significant chunk of the money will go into funding data centers in the Middle East, Japan, and Europe. The move coming as the e-commerce giant is trying to step up its game and level the playing field with its competitor, Amazon. Amazon Web Services, which is Amazon's cloud operation, reported second quarter revenue of $1.8 billion. Alibaba CEO Daniel Zhang says their $1 billion investment is just the beginning. He hopes to match our, or outperform Amazon within three to four years. Back to uh, this uh, part of the globe. Uh, Chinese markets have recovered, but state scrutiny with regard to stock selling is stronger than ever. A unit of a state-owned aerospace company said on Wednesday that it had sacked a top official for selling shares in another subsidiary, violating government policies designed to stem a market rout. Authorities ordered state firm executives not to sell shares of their listed companies as part of a package of measures aimed at shoring up the stock market after it had had plunged more than 30%. But Shanghai listed AVIC Capital, which is a part of Aviation Industry Corporation of China, said in a statement that it had removed general manager Yang Shengun after the securities regulator launched an investigation into the company for selling shares in Zhonghang Heibao. Let's bring in our first guest of this morning, David Mann, who is the chief economist for Asia at Stanchart. Good morning, David. David, uh, state scrutiny, you know, continuing to happen in China. Is this a signal that the Communist Party will just not let go of the markets? Well, I think it is a major change from previously where we've been seeing uh, the stock market when we've had previous bursts of, of uh, major rallies followed by major declines. It was left a lot more to its own devices. Uh, I think things are, have changed. And I think the main reason is that actually policymakers do want uh, the capital markets to become an increasing source of financing long-term for growth, a lot more than they have been in the past. So moving away from traditional bank lending, certainly moving away from financing coming from the shadow banking industry, and being more explicitly uh, developing the debt capital markets, as well as uh, encouraging uh, IPOs long-term. So I think the problem is that the, they got a bit too much uh, of, uh, of a good thing, and uh, as a result of the excesses that we saw building in. I mean, we were talking about new individual accounts being opened uh, in April of uh, more than 15 uh, million. Uh, May was just under 15 million and June was just under 16 million new accounts uh, between Shanghai and Shenzhen. Uh, that, that, that speculative fever uh, took over and I think this is a very important, uh, very painful lesson that's been learned now. 
David, you know, different analysts have different views on the China situation. Some say that it will level at the 32 or 3300 mark, mirroring U.S. stock markets right before the Great Depression of 1929. Credit Suisse, however, believes that the late 1990s and early 2000s are sort of the period in history uh, that most rhymes with the current boom and bust in Chinese equities. What do you think? I think it's much more like the 2000s. And I think the other thing to remember is uh, in a lot of the other cases where we saw serious declines, almost all of the original gains were completely given up. And that is not the case right now. The overall level of market capitalization uh, today uh, is significantly above where we were, for example, at the end of June 2014. If you look at the Shanghai uh, market cap, uh, we had around 15 trillion renminbi as of the end of June. Uh, at the peak, yes, we were up at 41, and the latest one is 31. So we're still double where we were in terms of market cap uh, just over a year ago. So I, I think it, it certainly should not be seen as being as much of a, of a huge uh, negative for the economy as some are suggesting. And certainly talking about it in parallels with Great Depressions uh, is, I think, completely uh, overblowing the drama of what's going on. Certainly, if you were an individual investor caught buying at the top, and, and uh, let's not forget, a lot of those multiple accounts uh, were being opened because since April, uh, individuals were allowed to open more than one account. Uh, so a lot of the same people that could have lost from the top were also sitting on decent gains to begin with. Uh, so it's very debatable on exactly uh, how much of a negative impact this is going to have on consumer sentiment or retail sales for the entire economy, uh, knowing that, of course, that only a tiny fraction, well under 10%, we would say, uh, of household wealth is even held in stocks. Uh, Tobias, what do you think? Yeah, I have one reaction to that, and that was the uh, leaked and now very much uh, sort of stepped away from uh, report that Bridgewater used, in which they said that the amount of assets lost in the retail sector was about 1% or something of uh, overall economy. And that predominantly was with household investment. So, and that makes sense that given the percentage drop that you look at since the high. Um, in that report, they alluded to a comparison with uh, Japan 80s, 90s. What's your opinion on that one? Well, this is, uh, just going back to the same point, the actual loss, yes, there is a, a downdraft from, let's just take uh, the Shanghai composite from 41 trillion down to 31. But if we're talking about wealth effect, usually even on the consumer level, and I agree the vast majority of holders uh, of uh, the stock market is much more held uh, by the retail sector than it is in other countries, um, the actual overall level of wealth is still higher than it was a year ago. I don't think uh, it's, it's necessarily true that you can just look at that drawdown and say, well, that's the loss, and let's ignore all of the gains that were seen over the prior year. I think that is, uh, that's trying to over-dramatically uh, describe what the negative impact is. For sure, psychology is affected, and for sure, I think there's other problems associated with the fact that so many new measures, including those measures uh, banning sales uh, by those holding more than 5% of stocks, uh, a lot of other measures taken uh, were also things leaving people a bit cautious about investing longer term in the future. Uh, but right now, the actual negative impact, I think, is being overblown if you only uh, decide to, to focus on, on what the drop was and ignore the fact that we're still up 60% year on year, uh, even on the level of the index. But I would tend to say that if you look at the wealth effect, a lot of it indeed accrues to the early uh, investors. So what you got is a relatively broad base of the investor base that started late, which were people with relatively low uh, savings and low education levels. That, of course, is where your spending gap, of your, your spending impact is going to be. So there might be a problem in this whole uh, transformation from a production-based to consumer-based society. This might be from a bit of a delay. 
Well, I think the, the, the thing to take into account I mentioned was the multiple accounts. So it's interesting that since April was when multiple accounts were suddenly permitted. Uh, let's not forget the actual rally had been going on since November, and we didn't see anywhere near uh, as many uh, openings of accounts uh, in Q1. It was the, I think it's the same people, the same probably higher net worth individuals who had uh, accounts and they were doing extremely well already that were opening multiple accounts because suddenly for the first time after April, they were allowed to. And as soon as you, we went past April or in April itself, uh, we more than doubled uh, the pace of account opening. So I think, again, uh, we're overblowing the idea that this is going to have widespread uh, negative impact on consumer spending in China. All right, David, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is David Mann, and he is the Chief Economist for Asia at Standard Chartered Bank. He joined us from Singapore. So what is a better investment right now? India or China? This is uh, one question that analysts have been banding about uh, ever since we've seen the volatility in Chinese markets. Here's James Tom, Senior Investment Manager at Aberdeen Asset Management, talking with Bloomberg's Matt Miller. We're invested in China Mobile, uh-huh. uh, which uh, continues to do pretty well, by the way. Nice, resilient uh, stock. Um, PetroChina, obviously uh, having a harder time with the oil price, but one that's subject to quite a bit of reform. Uh, so uh, longer-term prospects still good there. Uh, but the majority of our uh, exposure to China is actually indirect still. So we prefer the Hong Kong market as a proxy for the mainland. And, I mean, obviously being in the Asian equities team, You've got to invest, I mean, that's the biggest area there, but you've got to invest somewhere in Asia. You think India is uh, the best alternative? We've been positive on India for, for a long time. And in fact, when you look at the, the, the GDP growth there, it's been going in the wrong direction for, for some years now. And despite that, we've still been invested quite heavily in India, uh, which tells you that we like the companies, uh, irrespective of the macro environment. And uh, we think India is still home to excellent quality companies. Uh, it's still a stock picker's market, so there are still issues of corporate governance, failings, and so on, as you find elsewhere in the region. But uh, there are companies there that are still growing earnings at 30% annually, uh, despite the slowing economy. I have to assume with at least mid-cap and higher companies, well, let me ask, is corporate governance in India exponentially better than the corporate governance that you see in China? It's very stock specific. Um, Really? Yes. Uh, So I think uh, you find as many issues probably as you do in mainland China. There's perhaps been slightly fewer corporate scandals than we've seen uh, in China, Uh, fewer in India now, but certainly there's a history there. Um, But you do find uh, plenty of companies that are uh, adhering to good governance standards. Um, There are quite a few family-run companies uh, uh, that we like um, that have uh, treated minority shareholders fairly. For, for a long time. Uh, there are actually quite a few subsidiaries of multinational companies listed in India as well. That's a product of the history of the Indian stock market. Uh, and whilst not perfect, uh, always, uh, those companies at least tend to bring in uh, uh, best practice from in terms of governance. You like China Mobile and, uh, and the petrol company uh, in China, PetroChina. What do you like in India? Give us a couple names uh, that you think are strong there. 
Uh, we like quite a few of the private sector banks. Uh, so within that, we would uh, include HDFC, which is a big uh, mortgage financing uh, company um, with, as you imagine, the, the low penetration of uh, housing in India, um, good long-term structural growth there. Uh, we like some of the consumer names. Uh, so Godrej Consumer Products, a relatively smaller company, but uh, also Hindustan Unilever, the subsidiary of Unilever. They're an example of a, a listed multinational. Um, some of the cement companies as a proxy for uh, infrastructure development, which is a big theme for, for uh, Prime Minister Modi. Uh, and uh, some of the IT services companies as well, which are much less about the Indian story. Uh, they earn most of their revenues from the US, in fact, uh, but uh, again, uh, have been very uh, strong cash generative uh, businesses. All right. Well, it's time to take a quick look at the numbers now this morning. Uh, the Nikkei is up seven-tenths of a percent to 20,452. Australia's ASX 200 up 0.17% to 5,619. And Seoul's Kospi up 0.15% to 2,040. In currencies, the euro is valued at 1.09 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 123.99 US Yen. One pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and eight cents and one one U.S. dollar and 55 cents. Well, we'll be back to talk more about alternative assets right after this. To prevent avian flu, you should avoid touching birds, poultry or their droppings and wash hands frequently. Make sure that all foods from poultry, including eggs, are thoroughly cooked before eating. When traveling outside Hong Kong, avoid visiting poultry markets and farms. Do not bring any birds or poultry back home. If you develop fever and respiratory symptoms after your trip, wear a mask and consult your doctor explaining your travel history. For information, please call the Department of Health hotline at 2833-0111. The time is now 8.20 a.m. And according to recent research by services company Towers Watson, global alternative assets under management hit $6.3 trillion, while total assets managed by the top 100 alternative investment managers reached $3.5 trillion. This is in 2014. And that's up 6% from $3.3 trillion in 2013. So, this begs the question then as to how alternative really are alternative assets. Let's bring in Towers Watson's head of private markets in Asia, Richard Tan. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Renita. Richard, alternative assets could be defined as practically anything, you know, stemming from long short funds to art and wine. So can you give us a little bit more detail as to how you are defining them? Sure, absolutely. So I think for the purposes of the survey, we've obviously had to uh, contain that definition somewhat. And uh, what we've defined it uh, to include is basically nine major asset classes, and that's broadly private equity, real estate, infrastructure, hedge funds, real assets. Now that's uh, defined to include agriculture, aquaculture, and timber-related investments, as well as commodities and illiquid credit. Illiquid credit is basically investments that are made in uh, uh, debt instruments. So with uh, all of these assets that you've described uh, are pretty much illiquid assets for the most part. So uh, why are they becoming so mainstream? Well, you, you know, I think uh, this phenomenon of an increase in terms of interest in alternative assets 
has been increasing for quite some time, uh, at least for the duration that we've conducted the survey for, and that's over five years. I think there's a number of reasons for that, but I think the two main ones is the fact that um, investors are seeking to move up the risk curve, um, looking so in other words, looking for riskier assets in search of uh, investments with higher potential returns. And given the, the current low-yield environment that we're in right now, so it's driving investors such, such as pension funds and insurance companies to find ways and means in order to boost their returns. The other reason as well, uh, the reason, as wa- reason why it's more popular is because um, alternatives, generally speaking, is a useful portfolio diversifier. So the volatile public markets, that we're uh, encountering right now tend to make alternative investments appear more attractive due to their stable and long-term nature. Now, there is obviously a caveat, and the exception is uh, hedge funds, uh, which is often linked uh, more to public market performance. Now, um, am I to assume then from what you're saying that investors are no longer finding the kinds of returns that they're looking for by investing in stocks and bonds? No, I think uh, they, it, it always makes sense, I think, at least we feel, to have a uh, diversified portfolio. I think where alternatives fit in is, as I mentioned earlier on, if you're thinking of adding an additional alpha, and uh, alpha that's generated from manager skill selection, or, or perhaps from the illiquidity premium, then alternatives is a, uh, an option that's viable. But of course, the, all the other traditional assets you know, have their... Uh, our, our drivers of returns within the portfolio and the combination of which I think makes more sense. Now, of course, a lot of this makes sense for institutional investors. What about the retail investor? Uh, how many of these opportunities are open to them? Uh, you're absolutely right in the sense that uh, all the alternatives uh, investment profile is one that uh, fits a select, more select group of investors. And the reason for that is because... Um, Alternative investments is often associated with a lockup. That lockup could span between, you know, perhaps three months all the way to 12 or even 14 years. It depends on the uh, the strategy you're pursuing. So that's the reason why it's the um, uh, investors that are able to um, withstand this illiquidity profile are often that uh, the, the most uh, appropriate investors, and oftentimes it's uh, institutional investors. But, however, having said that, we have a category within the survey which is, uh, comprises of wealth managers, and wealth managers obviously uh, are investing on behalf of uh, high-net-worth individuals or ultra-high-net-worth individuals, and that category is increasing as well. Tobias, what do you think? You're an alternatives guy. Do you see alternatives reaching a stage where they're no longer alternative? Uh, I would tend to agree that it is becoming more mainline, um, especially if you would look at the hedge fund space where I'm active. And that's indeed, uh, as Mr. Ten also indicated, uh, these tend to be a bit more related to the markets. However, I would dare say that also the other classes have a bigger relationship with the market than you might assume. And that's also what Mr. Ten related to how we got here in the first place. If everybody is looking for yield and is upping on the risk curve, then it's the same flow of money that first put the bond markets high, then took the equity markets with it, and this seems to be the next step. So I think there is correlation. Richard, what would you say are the top three asset classes? Um, Well, I think uh, just 
linking the uh, the response to to our survey, the top three I would say is private equity and hedge funds, primarily because within the survey itself, each accounts for 20% of total investor exposure. And the third one is real estate. Now, that accounts for 30% of total exposure. And by the way, it, it has increased 2% from, previous, from the previous year. Now, you did mention that uh, many of these investors are actually wealth managers who are investing on or recommending, you know, on behalf of their clients who are retail investors. You know, traditionally, we were told sort of by investment managers that, you know, when it comes to your portfolio, it should be fairly balanced. If you're going to look the way of alternative assets, uh, perhaps you should dedicate 10 to 15 percent of your portfolio to this kind of asset as long as you've done well in the other areas. Is this sort of no longer the right advice? Um, I, I think that is the, uh, uh, the global experience in terms of uh, uh, how institutional investors are approaching the, uh, the strategic asset allocation, and that is broadly between 5 to uh, 10% uh, historically. But I do dare say that that um, percentage has cracked up uh, in recent years, and as I've mentioned before, that it's it's for the search. It's uh, the reason for that is because investors are seeking you know higher returns, particularly uh, in the uh, the current uh, given the current state of the other uh, markets today. Um, the other reason as well, and it, this is quite uh, specific to the uh, the industry that the investors are in. Obviously, in the case of um, you know pension investors, they do have uh, asset liability management considerations, and so therefore. Um, the reason, uh, oftentimes, the reason that they are, they are uh, investing in alternatives, once again, is primarily for the uh, potentially higher returns, but as well is to mas- uh, manage the uh, the yield profile of the current portfolio that they have. Within alternatives, there is a subgroup uh, which is uh, stable income assets, which the, uh, these investors could invest into. That the profile often, the returns profile, oftentimes is slightly different from bonds. All right, Richard, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Richard Tan is the head of private markets in Asia for Towers Watson. Uh, Time to take another quick look at the numbers this morning. The Nikkei is up almost 1% to 20,500. Australia's ASX 200 index is up six-tenths of a percent now to 5,642. And Sol's Cospi up two-tenths of a percent to 2,041. Gold currently stands at $1,096.20 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $53.63. Well, Tobias, uh, here we are almost at the end of the show. Uh, What are your parting words for the day? It's going to be a bit of the same as last week. Um, Still look at commodities. The bottom still seems to be falling out of it. And keep your eyes on China. It's uh, the level of harsh-handed government intervention is unique as we've seen in the world. People compare it to quantitative easing, but we're going a line beyond. Look at the guy who got fired for selling his company stock, not even his own stock, but his company stock. So they're throwing a lot at it. There's a lot at stake. I think it's not solved, and it's a very, very interesting episode. Let's see what happens. All right, Tobias, thank you for joining us this morning and uh, on uh, every occasion that you possibly can on Money for Nothing. Tobias Hexter is a CIO and senior strategist at True Partner Advisors and a regular guest host on Money for Nothing. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's edition. The weather forecast for today will give us some sunny intervals and a few showers and isolated thunderstorms later on.
The temperature right now is 28 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 88%. Time for the half-hour news summary now with Sam Butler. French transport officials are investigating a piece of aircraft wreckage washed up on the Indian Ocean island of Réunion to see if it comes from a missing Malaysian airliner. U.S. sources say investigators who've seen photographs have a high degree of confidence the debris is a wing component from a Boeing 777, the same model as the missing plane. The BBC's Tom Bateman reports from Washington. The debris was discovered by people cleaning up a beach on Reunion and according to one witness it appeared to have been in the water a long time. An image which has emerged online shows the wreckage covered in shells. French air transport officials are trying to establish where the debris came from while air safety officials here in the US believe it to be a component from the trailing edge of a wing from a Boeing 777. 239 people were on board the flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. The Malaysian government says a team has been sent to reunion to examine the wreckage. Russia has vetoed a UN Security Council resolution that sought to set up a special tribunal to try those responsible for shooting down flight MH17 over Ukraine. The move came as the Security Council considered a draft resolution backed by Malaysia, the Netherlands, Australia and Ukraine. Earlier, the Russian President Vladimir Putin said it would be inappropriate to set up a tribunal before a separate Dutch-led inquiry delivered its findings. The Malaysian Transport Minister Liao Tiong Lai said he was deeply disappointed with Russia's Decision. Instead of conveying the message in support of justice and accountability, we are sending